welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. This morning we're going to kick off a bit of a a series, a short series, but one that we're going to be thinking about um, our worship. As we enter into another new year, as we kind of uh, recalibrate ourselves and still amongst some disruption and having experienced a lot of disruption over the last year, um, we think it's a great time to just think about the practice of our worship, what it is that we do when we gather together like this on Sunday mornings and in smaller gatherings as well. What is it that we do when we worship? So I think it's important to periodically remind ourselves of this, to really kind of consciously bring to mind and bring to our attention the things that we do um, when we gather Um, And these are questions that, in a sense, we've been asking already a little bit as part of the worship team. We had a gathering with some of our worship leaders, and we we thought through some of these issues and just thinking about um, what is to come, what is ahead, as we we kind of recalibrate ourselves a little bit. Um, But I just think it's it's something that is significant enough that we want to really invest in together. So I hope um, that this little series just helps us ask some questions together as a community and and really kind of find our our grounding in that. And so, um, as Stephen mentioned in the notices, that space that we're creating um, just this month for all our Sunday teams to gather is, is part of this kind of process a little bit for us to really intentionally think about what it is that we do when we gather. So we're going to be looking at different aspects of worship, um, but just also to note that kind of woven in with this series, it's not going to be like a block of kind of four weeks or whatever, but woven in, Stephen is also going to be starting a new series on Revelation. So hopefully it won't actually feel confusing as we kind of chop and change, but that it feels like as we look at the, uh, the, the, the book of Revelation together, that these things actually start to intertwine a little bit, that they kind of inform one another. Uh, Revelation, this kind of picture of this enormous cacophony of sound and images as people um, in the culmination of things gather around the worship of the throne of Jesus and we just hope and pray that these two series kind of really lend themselves to one another and it becomes something that it feels like a bit of a journey that we're on together as we think about our worship. So um, I want to make clear at the outset as we think about this series that when I mean worship I don't just mean what we sing. That's obviously a really big important part of it in, in the Christian faith is our songs. But I don't want you to think, oh, he's talking about worship, that means I can switch off because I'm not in the worship band. Worship for me, I think, is bigger than that. It's all of our lives, but particularly when we gather on Sunday mornings, it's the things that we say from the front, it's the things that we say to each other. It's our prayers, it's when we read scripture, it's when we gather around the word like this now, it's when we leave silence. It's when we serve tea and coffee and welcome one another. It's all of the things that we do when we gather together, when we're here, whether it's a big gathering like this on Sunday morning, whether it's in our homes as missional communities, whether it's a prayer meeting or a church meeting, anything where we're together and we're focusing our attention on Jesus. And I think that's really where worship starts. Attention. Where we give our attention. So, yeah, 
we're going to start this series on worship, and really the first aspect I want to bring to our attention is worship as story, or worship is story. And I think this is a really crucial place for us to start, because when we begin to look at some other aspects of worship in in kind of future Sundays, um, I think it all comes out of this in a way. I kind of see story as the container that everything else goes into. I think it's crucial to everything that we do together as church. It's crucial for our own personal lives. It's crucial for us together as, as we seek to follow Jesus. And story is crucial to Christian worship because story is, I believe, how we fundamentally make meaning. Story is how we fundamentally make meaning. Humans are meaning-making machines. We can't help it. It's what we do. It's just what we're wired for. It's just how we long to be in the world. We, we long to be in a world and have lives that are meaningful. And story is how we do it. And there's a bit of a, t- a term that's been coined in recent years. I don't know if you've come across it before. Um, it's a term and it's called, we're in a meaning crisis. I don't know if you've come across that word before. I've um, heard it from various people, but where I first heard it was a, a Canadian a neuroscientist called John Viveke, and he's got a whole series of lectures online called Waking from the Meaning Crisis, and if you've got a spare 50 hours, I'd really recommend that you get into that. But the extremely short version is that we're in the middle of a meaning crisis because we fundamentally find ourselves in a time where there is all sorts of contradictory and, and conflicting stories about the world going on all at once, about who we are as human beings, about what we're here for, about how you lead a meaningful life, about where this whole show, where this whole world is heading. And the symptoms of this meaning crisis are things that I think we're seeing all the time in our news feeds, in our social media feeds. Institutional breakdown, suspicion of authority, just the mass exodus out of religious communities and religious commitments the critique of things that were previously just accepted as norms like like the family and gender and sexuality and all of these things, the fracturing of communities and that feeling that social cohesion is just tearing at the seams and it just feels like there's a real sense of isolation, a general skepticism, a general weariness or anxiety about things happening in the world, a cloud of hopelessness. And so, perhaps these are indicators that we're suffering under a crisis of meaning. And I think a crisis of meaning is because we don't really know sometimes what story we're living by. And so what do I mean by story when I say this word? I said that stories are fundamental to how we construct meaning. So how could stories, or narratives is another word that we could use, how do they create meaning? Are we talking about things that just start once upon a time? And a story might start with once upon a time. Our story, the Christian story, starts with in the beginning, which is usually a good place to start. But a story, I think, tells us a few things. It tells us who we are. It tells us where we come from. It tells us what we should do now. And it tells us where we're going. Who we are, where we come from, what we should do, and where we're going. And if you look hard enough, you'll find a story in everything. And one example of this really smacked me in the face in recent months. Uh, In this very building, we were hosting um, a a bunch of events, uh, a a group called uh, Stop Climate Chaos Scotland, and um, this was 
they were running events in here and throughout the city in parallel to COP26 a couple months ago. And so I got to listen into a few of these events because I was kind of doing a couple of the venue shifts, running the sound at the back and stuff. So I got to kind of be a fly on the wall to some of these meetings, some of these gatherings that they had, some panel meetings, some discussions, some um, uh, open mic nights and things like that. And the thing that really struck me when I was listening in to what a lot of these people were saying as they gathered was the dedication and the commitment that the delegates had. They were really, really passionate, and it was visible for everyone to see. They were all out. They knew exactly what they were. They knew exactly what they wanted. They knew exactly how they wanted to go about it. And so I was listening to these speakers on these panels and, and just listening to the energy that they could rouse in the room from the things that they were saying. And so there was this real shared unity of, of purpose. There was this shared language, this shared experience. Where they disagreed with each other, it was, it was full-throated and it was committed and passionate. There was a sense of urgency. There was a strong feeling that these were a movement of people. They weren't just a loose kind of bunch of individuals gathering around a shared interest or a common goal or, or a club. They had a real sense of urgency. It felt like it was going somewhere. It felt like there was a groundswell of movement. So these people knew who they were. They knew what their purpose was and how they wanted to get there, and all of it around the issue of climate. And I found that really quite interesting. And so if you just kind of park the, the particulars that many of these um, delegates had about a shared sense of politics or a, sh a shared sense of their interest in climate, if you park the details of those things for a second, it's what you've got a group is a group of people who are caught up in a really clear, really well-articulated and well-rehearsed narrative, a really well-versed story. They have a story, they're living it. And so it's no wonder, in a sense, that it captures the hearts and imaginations of so many people who want to follow in that as well and get involved. And so when we see people who are really committed to a cause, it's because they're committed and living by a story. And so it, it's not, in a sense, the kind of the scientific data that we can talk about with climate and about how many centimetres the sea levels are going to rise. And those are really important details, but it's the way that those things are weaved into a story. And that's what gets people moving. That's what gets people out in the streets. 100,000 people on the street in Glasgow a couple months ago. That's what gets people going. This is how story works. This is how it creates meaning for individuals and for groups to come around something that's shared, that binds us together into this process of meaning making. And so when you think about things in this way, it becomes really clear as to why we uh, do these things at all. Whether it's the climate activists, or whether it's the climate skeptics, both are gathered around a story. Whether you're a Brexiteer, or whether you're an ardent Remainer, those are two different stories that we're living by about a particular relationship to the European Union. Those are two different stories, and that's why people become so committed to them. The rivalry between Man City supporters and Man United supporters, they're two different stories. And we know that one is definitely wrong. And that really, the lesser known but third way, the third story of all the Mathletic is definitely the true story. But in, in reality, you probably don't want to believe that story. It doesn't, it's not a story that ends well, certainly at the moment anyway. But we can kind of, kind of joke and laugh about this stuff. But actually, when you see things framed in this way, it helps us understand why we can muster up so much energy, so much commitment, so much passion 
so much fanaticism around these things, even silly things like 22 men running around a field kicking a football. Why is it that it captures our, soul, our hearts and our minds so much? And it's the stories that we tell that create this meaning. We are storied beings. And so when I mean story, do I mean fiction? Because if I say story and I say narrative and that um, climate activists are living by narrative, do I mean it's not true? Do I mean that I'm being derogatory in some way? Well, here's an, an, inter an interesting question to get to get that at that. Is Harry Potter true? So Harry Potter is a story, but is it true? But what do I mean by true? Did it happen? Did uh, a magic boy sometime in the late 90s fight a dark wizard? Well, no. Well, probably not, nothing we know of. But that's only a partial answer. If it didn't happen, why are we so compelled by it? Why did I, as a child, when my nose was in the books, why for months on end did I fall asleep dreaming about running around Hogwarts and kind of constructing my own little stories, my own little world and what I would do and what I would get up to? Why would I be doing that? Why did I even just, if I am really honest, admit and allow myself the belief that maybe on my 11th birthday I'd receive a letter via Owl inviting me into a world of magic? Why did I allow myself that belief, even if I just, uh, if I'm ashamed to admit that, but that's probably true. If Harry Potter isn't true, why do fans around the world make a pilgrimage to the studios, to step into the Great Hall, to experience that space? Why visit a theme park? Why go and drink butterbeer? Why go and enjoy all these things and part of that, that world? Here's an interesting question. Why do grown adults actually play Quidditch? I think they ought to be asking themselves that. So why has a generation that's been brought up with this fictional world and form communities around it? Why have they got this common experience about a story about broomsticks and witches and wizards and a guy with a funny nose? Why have they formed community around it, especially online? Why is it that they see the world of Harry Potter embodying a kind of a set of ideals, a set of values? Ideals that they've even held the actual author to as she starts to express some of her particular political ideas. Harry Potter isn't contingent on the imagination or the pen of J.K. Rowling anymore. The Wizarding World doesn't require Warner Brothers to keep milking that cash cow and bringing out more and more films. We don't need films and we don't need the books anymore, in a way, to live and embody that world. It doesn't need those things to exist anymore. So with all this in mind, does Harry Potter exist? Well, actually, yes. In that sense, is Harry Potter a true story? Kind of, yes. And I'm just doing a quick scanner around the room because we've just had Christmas time. And so an important question that kids ask at Christmas time, or a certain age of kid would ask themselves at Christmas time, I'm really just doing a scan of the room and making sure and hoping that no one of a particular age is uh, online watching this, but... Does Santa Claus exist? Well, in the same way, yes. I actually think he does. This is what I'm talking about when I mean story. Story is the mechanism by which humans create meaning. Story is what compels world leaders to gather together in one city to talk about the future of the world. And so, in John chapter 1, let's read this together. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everything was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. The story became flesh. Our faith is a storied faith. We have a story. Some people even use the phrase, the greatest story ever told. I always thought that was a bit corny, but I actually think it happens to be true. What makes the Christian story stand in contrast to all other stories that we might tell is that it is a story that God himself is writing. It's a story he's telling about himself. And therefore, if it's a story he's telling about himself, it's a story that he's telling about us, and it's a story he's telling about his creation. The word, the story, the narrative became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The great mystery and truth of our faith is that in Jesus Christ, the story, the narrative, and the reality, our material world, touch. So in one sense, Harry Potter might exist, but Harry Potter didn't actually step off the page and into the real world. In that sense, the stories that we tell make us what Tolkien described as sub-creators, Subcreators creating stories full of life and full of meaning in our own way, but all under the authority of the master storyteller who is weaving a narrative about himself, about the things that he's done, about the things he's going to do. We've been handed a story that tells us who God is, who we are, where we came from, where we're going and what we should do now. And so this is a story in a sense we know full well, don't we? But do we really allow that story to shape and transform us every day? And so I really like, we're going to sort of do a quick blitz through the story, but I really like this formulation of it, and because it comes with a nice kind of uh, picture to go with it. The story goes, the Garden of Eden, the desert, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Eternity. The Garden of Eden, God creates the world. God creates everything good, perfect, in, in harmony, and in a place where humans and God are in this perfect right relationship. And then the story progresses. There's a fall, a falling away. Sin enters the world, a sickness, death, something that creates a disequilibrium between ourselves, between God. The Garden of Gethsemane. A moment of redemption 
where Jesus prays, not what my will, but yours be done, and accepts the burden of responsibility to take the sin of the world on his shoulders, to take it to a cross and die. The turning point in the story, the place where our salvation comes from, and the garden of eternity, restoration, heaven, the place where everything is made right again and the kingdom comes in its fullness and creation is redeemed and we are redeemed in fullness. And so this is a story that is narrating what God has been doing, what he's up to right now. It tells us who we are. It tells us what our purpose is. And unlike Harry Potter, it's made real because Jesus steps into it steps into reality, steps into our lives. And so, to kind of bring it back to the beginning, what's all this story stuff got to do with worship? Remember I said that worship begins with attention, and what we do is we fix our attention onto God. And we fix our attention onto this grand narrative, this grand story that God is telling us. And so when we gather our worship ought to be rehearsing this story. I'm not even just rehearsing, not even just telling this story. There's something about when we gather together, when we worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we listen to the word, when we speak to one another, when we welcome one another, we are enacting it. Like actors on a stage, learning their lines, playing the part. We're on stage again and again and again, And so the idea is that that story begins to capture our hearts and our affections so that it grows in our lives with meaning and purpose. So it transforms our hearts, so it directs our actions and our behavior and drives us every day towards Jesus, the one we want to follow, the one we want to seek union with. And so when we gather together, does it feel like we're being captured by the aroma of God's story? And one of the issues I think that we can get into in church is that Sometimes we can neglect to see our faith as a story at all. And certainly we've been guilty of perhaps emphasizing or telling only parts of it over the other bits. And this isn't something we always do intentionally. This happens because of just historical reasons and because of all sorts of other reasons. The theologian Robert Weber did a lot of thinking about the worship of the church, and he said this. In the modern world, we seldom looked at the Bible as a composite picture revealing a cosmic vision of the world. We were too busy with the details to see God's narrative whole. We were too concerned with analyzing its parts, with literary criticism, historical verification, and theological systems. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the little minutiae and the little tiny details that we lose that sense of the whole. Those details are important and they're worth thinking about, but sometimes we can lose the sense of the whole story. It can become fragmented. And then therefore it has an effect where our worship only addresses a part of it. And sometimes we can be left with this view of God that's that's fragmented, that's partial, that's only um, uh, a a lopsided view of God maybe. And so look at what happens that when you tell each of those parts of the story in isolation. An emphasis just on the beginning, just on God as creator, who made everything good and we kind of take it from there leads to a story where God kind of sits back as some vague deity and humans are left to their own devices to make the world how they see fit. We get a story about the inevitability of progress, of kind of just fixing society's needs. If we just have the right ideas and we just have the right material uh, circumstances, we can make 
heaven on earth. We can create our own future. And I actually think this informs much of our world today. Much of the secular modern world actually lives by this story. Whether it's God or whether it's the Big Bang, God is just sat there in this sort of vague position that is not really having any effect in our lives here and today, and we can just get on with accumulating stuff and creating a better world. An emphasis only on the fall, the desert, is a story about shame, where there's only condemnation for the things we do wrong. And we find ourselves steeped in the ugliness of sin, a hopeless, loveless world where all we're told is a list of things that we can't do. And so it's just about just trying to stay away from things that are not good for us, things that are bad. An emphasis just on redemption part of the story. And I think this is sometimes where church ends up falling back on the most. And as far as narrowing kind of single elements of the story goes, this is possibly like the best place to land, but it's still not great. Because at least it's the turning point or the axis upon which the whole story and the, the, the moment of salvation, the cross where Jesus comes in and, and changes everything. But the problem is, is that it can also create this version of our faith where it's all deeply individualistic. This is that just you and Jesus part comes in. It creates a story whereby you can live your life and it doesn't really matter what goes on in the world. It doesn't matter what happens to the rest of creation and we just live our lives, just us and Jesus, this personal, individualistic faith, and at the end of it all, it's all great. And it leads to a story whereby you could live your entire life for yourself, and at the end on the deathbed, commit to Jesus, and that's it, you're away, like a divine insurance policy. And finally, that emphasis on the last part, eternity, heaven, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, in its entirety, and claiming that as the here and now, sometimes that can lead to a kind of sense of what we call the prosperity gospel. That all that's left now for us is blessing and heaven right here and healing and, and, and just everything's gonna be great. And if you didn't get that healing, that's because you just didn't have enough faith. And so it can lead to a story that's disembodied, that's just all about chasing that next spiritual high. And so notice that there's kind of truth in each of those parts. But alone, they aren't the whole story. We need to tell ourselves the whole story, the whole thing. And that's our hope for our worship. When we gather together, we're taking part in this, this moment, this event, this, this part of this time of worship, of communal attention, where we all gather our attention together and focus it in on God, on the one who is telling this great story. We rehearse it. We tell it to one another. We step into it and enact it. And so in our preaching, in our songs, when we gather around a communion table, when we pray, when we hear scriptures read, when we take part in liturgies, when we celebrate baptism and weddings, when we go to funerals, the whole of life, the testimonies and stories of God that we tell one another, we're recounting the story of who God is. We're telling of his love and his power and his majesty. We're telling about what he's done, what he's accomplished, what he's been doing in history this whole time. We sang just in that kid's song, all through history, God has been working. We're talking about how he himself stepped into the story to rescue us, to say who we are as loved, as sons and daughters, and that he longs to be with us, 
And therefore that gives us purpose. It tells us where we're going for, the hope for the future, the restoration and renewal of all things. So this is really foundational. This is what we want and this is the fundamentals of why we gather together. This is what creates meaning in this space when we gather. So we want to worship God and who he is for the story that he's singing over us. So just as, as I pray and we draw this to a close, um, I just feel a sense that, yeah, there's that, as we enter into kind of a time of, of a new year, that sense of, that feeling of a warmth as we come together and gather, um, just that sense that we're stepping into everything that God has for us as we think about our worship, as we think about what we bring, our offering, our sacrifice of praise, as we engage it's not just something that is done from the front, but is something that we all bring together. So why don't I pray for us as we uh, move into the next time of worship. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are weaving this majestic, beautiful, amazing story throughout creation and the world. And that you want to invite us into that story. You want our lives to be a part of that, that each and every one of us is invited to bring and to step into and to play our part. And so God, as we gather together, whenever we find ourselves just either on our own in a space of, of contemplation and silence and worship, whether we are reading your word, whether we gather just one of us, two of us, three of us, a hundred of us or more, but there would be a sense that we are enacting, rehearsing a story. It's a story that you are writing, God, but it's a story that you also stepped into and that you're playing your part in terms of just that sense of our restoration, our redemption, that this world isn't just going to fizzle away, but that you have plans and purpose and meaning and that we get to be invited into that. And so when we sing our songs, when we lift up the words and when we... Um, when we just even spend time with one another in fellowship, would that be something that is just central as we cast our attention, turn our attention to you, Jesus? Would you make the story real in our lives? Would you come and inhabit our worship and our praises? In Jesus' name, amen.